Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fourth season, we're looking at Kenneth Branagh's 2011 film, Thor. I'm Matthew Fox from TheEthicalPanda.com. And I'm Andy Nelson from The Next Real Film Podcast. Today we're talking about Minute 41, which begins with Loki being mad at his father and ends with Loki being mad at his father. <laughs> Joining us on the show today, we have Austin Titchener creator of The Shakespeareans, co-artistic director of The Reduced Shakespeare Company, and producer and host of The Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. So good to have you here. I mean, I watched this minute and was like, okay, this is Shakespeare all over. Uh, Andy, we should have gotten Shakespeare. Oh, we did get a Shakespearean guest. Great. Um, so let's just kind of start there. What What is The Reduced Shakespeare Company? What's? It seems like you're not quite the... Uh, um, what, when someone thinks of a Shakespeare expert, this might be not quite what they think of. Talk to you a little bit about kind of what's your background and how you came into this. Well, yeah, I, it's uh, well as an expert, as a re- as a Shakespeare expert, I'm a reduced expert at best. Um, uh, the Reduced Shakespeare Company is a three person um, uh, comedy theater troupe that um, debuted 40 years ago this year um, at a Renaissance Pleasure Fair in Novato, California, performing a 20 minute version of Hamlet uh, at a Renaissance Pleasure Fair, um, and th- that show led to a, a reduced shortened Romeo and Juliet a couple of years later. And then uh, in 1987, some friend of the original founders of the company said, uh, said, hey, you should do you should reduce the complete works of William Shakespeare. You've done two. There's only 35 more. How tough could that be? <laughs> and as they debuted, gave the world premiere of uh, the complete works of William Shakespeare abridged at the uh, Fringe Festival, Edinburgh Fringe Festival in uh, August of 1987, thinking it would be the swan song of the company. But it took off uh, with global interest to such an extent that uh, two of the founders Two of the founding members um, uh, decided quickly they didn't want to do this anymore. They never set out to be professional actors, so they turned the reins over to um, two other uh, friends from of, of one of the founders from the University of California Berkeley Drama Department, myself and uh, my RSC partner, Reed Martin. And we have been running the company since 1992. We have written the nine, no, 10 other uh, Reduced Shakespeare Company scripts, reducing such things as American history, the Bible, um, uh, all the great books, all the great movies, the world of sports, the history of comedy, (laughs) every Christmas pageant and tradition, every winter holiday tradition into one show called The Ultimate Christmas Show Abridged. And then our two most recent shows are William Shakespeare's long-lost first play, Abridged, and Hamlet's big adventure, a prequel. It's the comedy of the <laughs> Prince of Denmark. I love it. I love it. Well, definitely, folks, check it out. We're going to give you a chance to tell so people good. how they can. But as we said, I'm so glad you're here. You know, I tend to think of myself as a little bit of a Shakespeare expert because I got an A minus in my high school Shakespeare class 25 that years counts. ago. That counts. Um, but I'm going to defer to you because I think you have a, a little bit more experience than I do. And so I wanted to start by saying we have this son aggrieved and hurt and yelling at his father. I mean, this is just straight up King Leo, right? Is that what we're seeing here? Well, it is. It's it's a lot of different things. It's yes, it's King Lear, but I don't think it's the part of King Lear that you're thinking of. The tension between Loki and Thor feels very much to me initially uh, like the tension between Hotspur and Hal uh, in Henry the Fourth, Part One, where Odin is Henry the Fourth, and Thor is Hal, the legitimate. Uh, a, a son heir to the throne um uh and loki 
Loki is Hotspur, who is not Hal's actual brother, but Henry the Fourth wishes Hotspur were his son instead of Hal, because Hotspur is more regal, more interested in fighting, and and Thor. I said. Thor, I said, I mean, Hal is more interested in drinking <laughs> and carousing and having fun and not being um, the heir to the throne. So that's the tension that 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 brotherly paternal father figure tension. That is that's what's happening on the surface. I th- but you're right about King Lear. But I think the relationship that we're really looking at is between Odin, Thor, and Loki is much like Gloucester and his sons, Edgar, his legitimate son, and Edgar and Edmund, his bastard son. And those tensions over who should get the 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 throne, not not the throne, but the, you know, the the Gloucester dukedom, um who should get the lands and property. They're vying, they're they're competing for each other even down to the fact that Gloucester loses both eyes instead of Odin just losing one eye. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. What I love about all this is obviously Brana was familiar with all of this as he was kind of telling the story because I mean he is very well versed in Shakespeare and so I love the idea that as he was uh reading the script as the writers were developing it like I love to think that he was saying oh you know it'd be interesting is if we include some element like this the, from this element of Shakespeare or that and kind of include that to kind of enhance these these elements with these characters and kind of bring these out more from these different Shakespeare plays I I love that um possibility. I think one of the many smart things that Marvel has done in these movies is to hire interesting directors with visions and backgrounds and worldviews that lend themselves to the the properties. And so Marvel, Kevin Feige and whoever knew going in that Thor wanted to be Shakespearean in scope. And so who better than to get Kenneth Branagh to not only for his talent and skill but for his uh uh credibility and legitimacy lending lending that aura of respectability to a silly superhero sci-fi movie. <laughs> you know, I, I remember seeing an interview some time ago with one of the actors. I think it was Hiddleston, but I'm not sure. Could have been Hemsworth or Odin or, or uh, any of them. But what they're saying was that one of the things you learn as a Shakespearean actor is how to convey emotion that people today will understand while using language that's completely archaic to modern-day audiences. And And the person said, so... Having that training, I could apply that training that instead of now, I'm not saying Duff or Sooth, but I'm saying Bifrost and Jodenheim and all these words that sound ridiculous and comic booky until I take that exact same Shakespearean approach of even though the context is crazy, everyone in the audience can relate to having a fight with their parent. And that's where I'm going to connect with people. And I just. I think it was so brilliant to be able to bring that mentality to this movie. <laughs> There's a reason that Shakespeare actors or actors with Shakespearean backgrounds or training get hired for the Star Trek franchises and and the, uh, any sci-fi franchise because there is an, a, 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 a facility with heightened language and uh, and techno babble as as they say in the Star Trek universe where, where these actors are able to ground this outlandish uh, uh, vocabulary and over the top emotions into something real and 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 accessible and i think that's what for me and we'll have even more of this in the next moment it, it's that ability that i think makes this moment land so strong because i can't relate to anything about fighting trust giants or anything but i've had fights with my father 
I've had moments where I was both angry at my father. And then when I recognized that I was causing him pain and like everything in this moment, I think I hope I hope there's a person out there who's had both a perfect childhood and a perfect time raising their children that they can't relate to this scene. But I think that's a very small number of us. A hundred percent. And 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 it's it's great to watch Hiddleston commit so heavily to uh, what an actor friend of mine calls the intensity of the intention uh, when he when he screams, tell me, you know, um, he needs to know. And, and it's and it's not just that he's having an argument with his father. He's having an argument with his father who tried to spare him spare his feelings by not telling him the truth so it wasn't even the father doing an evil thing i mean i'm sure odin has done plenty of questionable things but in this particular (laughs) case he was trying to spare loki's feelings and it backfires horribly well there's that's an interesting point because at the very beginning of the film we have odin talking to young thor and young loki uh telling them the story about this great battle that he had in 965 AD with the frost giants and the fact that they took the casket and brought it back and all this whole thing like he's telling us to the boys and then he's he kind of ends it you know with you know when they're saying i want to be king and and he's like well you know only one of you gets to be king but you're both born to be king and i can't help but feel like like is he tell like why is he telling them that story is i mean is it is he debating at that time like maybe i should tell loki about his past because as you as you find this moment when you uh when you learn that there was something else that he took from jotunheim that day uh it does make me think that um this is something that odin has been weighing the decision about you know when if ever do i tell loki this thing yes and and which makes it personal and yet the um born to be king is also an incredibly shakespearean theme in so many of his plays uh, uh destiny and legacy and really identity are at the core of so much of shakespeare's plays so, i mean ac- across the across the genres um in the histories particularly the the no, the 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 idea of legitimacy is drives so much of 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 who should be on the throne and and also what interestingly neither marvel nor uh, shakespeare questions the 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 value of a of a, uh, a hereditary monarchy either it's just assumed well obviously this is a good idea <laughs> now we just need to figure out who sits on the throne right right I, I remember reading some great articles when black panther came out about how wakanda is betrayed as this like technological wonderland where people are all taken care of and everything is great and happy and racism is not an issue in the same way and the ruler of the land is decided by a fistfight you know, so like, I, I get where you're coming from. Well, and also, if if T'Chaka had not been um, assassinated, you know, in that moment, could somebody have legitimately fought this challenge, this old man to a fight? I mean, that doesn't seem oh, right. Yeah. As soon as you get out, I mean, that doesn't seem very um, um, uh, what progress, progressive or enlightened. I guess. Yeah, Killmonger could have uh, ascended to the throne a lot quicker. <laughs> A yeah. lot quicker. <laughs> uh, please book him when we do Black Panther uh, minute by minute. That's yeah, only right. <laughs> 14 years away. Um, yeah, but, yeah exactly. I'm definitely the guy you want talking about Black Panther for sure. <laughs> also true. That's the, I'll tell you, that's the one movie that made me cry at the end. The one Marvel movie that made me cry at the end. Because I grew up near Oakland, and I think the final shot just touched me a lot. Oh, yeah. I, I went to school in Berkeley and lived a lot of time in Oakland. So, 
But pulling us back to this, I, I love what you say there about the legitimacy because, you know, what I love to think about is what's going through the character's head because both Hiddleston and uh, Hopkins and somewhat Hemsworth, but especially those two, are so good at portraying these moments where you're not exactly clear, where you can see the conflict. And I have to imagine that when Odin is having this conversation, like, yes, he loves Loki. Yes, at any moment he wants to not hurt Loki and wants to deliver information to Loki in a way that won't hurt him. But he has just had to decide that the person he thought would be the heir is not worthy of the throne. Loki's next in line. And I, I have to imagine that that's somewhere in Odin's head of, now I'm not just talking to my son, I'm also talking to my future heir. And I now need all the more so, because mate, like it, what you're kind of saying, it's kind of that, um, I, I haven't read Henry IV in many years, so I don't know if this moment happens, but to use that analogy, it's kind of the moment where they're like, okay, well, maybe Hal can't be king. So what about this other person? You know, uh, and clearly they're not in the line, but but Loki is. No, and that's the, one of the great one of the great scenes in Henry IV is the 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 scene where um, the king Henry IV has to tell how everything he had to do to be the king, because also Henry the Henry the Fourth gained his throne by uh, going to battle with Richard the Second. And there, so there's a there. He talks in his speech to Hal about the the potential illegitimacy of his own reign because he had a questionable claim coming from a cousin or whatever the family tree is. So he had to go out and win the trust, win the trust of England, so he would be um, um, the the king of the people um, by their decree, essentially. Um, um, and and how I think that's the scene in which Hal begins to recognize, oh crap. I I need to start doing my job here a little bit. I mean, he's trying to have it sounds like he's trying to have this conversation right now with Loki in this minute. But Loki's too upset by the the news revelation to kind of take in. And also, is Loki ever going to be the kind of king that anybody wants? I mean, he looks better than Thor in a lot of ways right now. But yeah, that's that's what I was going to say. If Thor had been crowned king earlier, I like I, I said to, with our guest last week, it's like I feel like we would have gotten the what if version of Thor. That's just like the party Thor traveling around, like doing whatever he wants, because he hasn't had this uh, kind of this comeuppance yet to kind of push put him through this change. But lore, I mean, lore, but L Loki, not lore, not Thoki. Loki is uh he's right he's currently even in this minute the god of mischief isn't he yes yeah. yep yeah all right do you give the throne to the god of mischief <laughs> well, i don't think I, you I, do do people call him that though or is it just like I, I, that's the thing it's like i mean he causes trouble he cuts people's hair like i've never had a sense like up to this point in this film that he's actively trying to uh cause serious mischief like so far it's just like you know you turned into a snake and you you know you you scared me and things like that. I mean, I feel like the subtitle of God of Mischief is your definition of mischief must be significantly different from everyone else's. <laughs> and, and I will also <laughs> just say in the mythology, at least the person who is the most mischievous in Asgard other than Loki is Odin. So like there's a history of a lot of mischief on the throne. But you're right in this world. I think that's a good point. So we've, we're, that's where Odin is. Where do you what's going through Loki's head at this point? Because. We've been talking for a lot of the previous minutes about how manipulative Loki is and how he is the one who is thinking everyone's playing checkers, he's playing chess. My read, at least, is this is the moment where there's none of that anymore. He's not trying to manipulate the situation. He's just feeling this raw emotion. 
What, what do you think is going through his head as he, you know, he asks, the casket isn't the only thing you brought back from Jotunheim and he's, he's not hearing Odin wanting to, you know, console him. What, what's in his head during this minute? He's questioning not only his legitimacy, but his place in the world, his fundamental identity. I mean, forget whether he's God of mischief or anything. Right now, he thought he was a prince. Now he finds out he is a prince, but not of Asgard, right? And in the minute, to, in the next minute, he's about to realize, wait, I'm a monster, which put, makes him on, to my, in my ears, a Caliban figure from Shakespeare's The Tempest, you know. But this is a this is a question. These questions of identity pop up in Shakespeare all the time because people are 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 banished from where they've been. They 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 are forced to fall go into disguise for both comedic and tragic reasons. They are forced to assume different. Um, identities. They are, uh, I mean, with so much going on in their lives, they are, as we would say now, forced to pivot and become different, different versions of themselves. And I think fundamentally, that's what's happening with Loki right now in this minute. He's coming to a, a fundamental new understanding of who he is. Especially because, I mean, he, you know, he, timeline for us with the story so far is it hasn't been that long since Odin told that story about how he defeated the Jotuns and the Jotuns were these terrible beings who were trying to basically take over the entire nine realms with the casket and freezing everything so they could rule and so I mean he's telling the story about how they're the bad ones they're the the evil ones and I had to stop them and put them put an end to them and uh, you know even when they went uh, when I mean, Loki just got back from Jotunheim, theoretically, for the first time, and all they were doing was slaughtering Jotuns left and right. Like, so many Jotuns died in the process of that little trip that they just took that, and now all of a sudden, he's just like, wait, I'm I'm one of them. I'm one of the bad guys. Yeah, it's just like you were saying. I mean, it's, you know, and, and then the question that he says, you were knee deep in Jotun blood. Why would you take me? I mean, I think that's that's a, a big question that he has right there that's like to that point. Well, and that, that is, that speaks to the, the, all the civil wars in Shakespeare's history plays or all the warring dukes in his comedies. Um, um, there is, you know, when you, when you, when you usurp Richard II and you're Henry the Fourth, Henry Bolingbroke, soon to be Henry the Fourth, you're killing Englishmen. You're, you are, uh, you are knee deep in whatever you said in English blood. Um, but they were the bad guys. And now we're fine. I mean, Loki is figuring out, discovering this same thing about himself. He's not he's not Henry the Fourth's blood. He's maybe Richard the Second's blood. Right. You know, and, I mean, that's a story that's been true since time immemorial, you know, all the way through to the modern day where, you know, you listen to stories about people who, you know, were sent to Iraq or Afghanistan. You often hear talk about how, you know, you're to some level trained to not see people as human to, to see them as lesser and certainly having world war ii and things like that and so of course it'd be happening here and I, I think often think one of my favorite sort of story tropes is the person who's raised in that culture to hate the other and then realizes they are the other you know and and how does it affect everyone else around here and that's that's exactly what happens here right there's another element to this, which is that a part of Loki's new understanding of who he is, is not only that he's not the prince, but he is the prince of, of the, the frost giant. But he's also now he's a he's a spoil of war. He's captured property. And there's there are. Well, I don't know about many, but several strong um, Shakespearean precedents for that. I'm thinking of, of Hippolyta in Midsummer Night's Dream 
which everyone forgets because of the fairies and the lovers and the comedy and the mechanicals, that the play, Midsummer Night's Dream starts with the planning for the wedding between Theseus and his captured war bride, Hippolyta. <laughs> That's a painful truth that many productions forget, that Midsummer Night's Dream starts in that way. But another character like this is Margaret of Anjou in the Henry VI plays. She is captured by Suffolk in battle. Suffolk has a fondness for her, to say it nicely, um, uh, for this. Uh, uh, she looks like a peasant's daughter, but she has she has a, a claim to not royalty, but um high class that that she can't really prove suffolk takes her and uh, gives her to to henry the to be his bride and she becomes an incredible character i love that you, you focus on that because i think that's one of the most interesting turns of this minute is he doesn't really go into it but you certainly get the sense that loki feels like had he been left in jotunheim he would have been raised as a prince as a beloved son of laufey and then Odin like responds with this kind of just one more twist that kind of helps explain why Odin would do it, but also is so emotionally laden where he says, no, you weren't going to have you. You were abandoned. You know, you were left. And it's funny. Andy and I were going back and forth uh, last week about was he abandoned or was he left in the temple? It was both, <laughs> which is kind of great. What's going on in that minute where Odin is saying that like it's because it's, it seems like it's such a change of Loki. Loki didn't know he's a Jotunheim. Now he thinks he would have been a prince of Jotunheim. And now he's hearing that actually the Jodens basically left you out to die. Now, we're only hearing this from Odin. <laughs> yep. So, and I can't remember whether we saw anything to confirm this, except in Yo in Odin's uh, memory of it. So I think we have to, I'm not sure how reliable a narrator Odin is, <laughs> but, uh, but I do think that there is a, um, I mean, he's, Odin's certainly putting the most positive spin on what he did. And there is, there is again, a Shakespearean precedent for this as well in Cymbeline. There is a, there is a general, not a king, a general named Valerius who kidnaps or does he rescue abandoned two sons of the king, of King Cymbeline, um, uh, uh, Guiderius and Arvaragus, I think is how it said. Anyway, he raises these two boys as his own. They're peasants. They're all in disguise as peasants. And yet, they are the heirs to the throne of England back in its tribal days before any of the before the 1066, uh, the Norman invasion. Again, Valerius is putting the best spin on this. And in Cymbeline, which is one of Shakespeare's later plays, one of his romances, which I define as a, a romance is a tragedy with a happy ending <laughs> because people get the people get the throne they want. People marry who they want, um, even though it starts off really horrible. And these two sons are like Loki discovering who they are in this moment and figuring out what to do next. And I think that's that continues to be the ongoing fascination with Loki, doesn't it? You know, what is he? Who is he? This question of who Loki is and what will he do next is now 10 years in the telling, including the recent series. I love what you bring up there because, you know, you're you're the Shakespeare expert. I, I'm not any means a mental health expert, but I have as, as a pastor, I have some background in, in counseling and psycho psychology and the like. And one thing that's talked about there is the concept of emotional memory. And that because at first you might want to think, oh, Odin is lying. He's spinning this. But it's it's something that our, the way our brains work is if you're in a situation where you're telling someone a story but you're trying to convince them of the emotion of the story because you like, you know, the emotion of the story, 
you're going to remember it in that emotional light. You know, if I remember that I did this loving, good thing for my son, I'm going to tell, and I'm not lying, I'm, or if I'm anything, I'm, I'm shading it to myself. And that's what I think Odin is, is. Odin is, like, he does genuinely love his son. He does think he has raised his son to be this wonderful person. And maybe there was some nefariousness when he took Loden, took took Loki, or maybe it wasn't even conscious, but whatever it is. And now Loki's upset. He wants Loki to feel better. And so I think, I don't think Odin is necessarily lying in this moment, or he, he may even know that he's spinning the truth, but he's definitely being affected by the fact that he wants to have a certain emotional character to the story he's telling that might not totally line up with some of the facts. Well, and we'll get some of that in the next minute, too, when he kind of gets when Odin finally answers Loki's question that we get at the end of this minute, where he's like, Loki says, you took me for a purpose. What was it? Uh, yeah. And so, I mean, Odin will finally kind of give a little bit more of that information. But it is interesting because it does feel like there's a lot of uh, story spinning that Odin is doing here and rewriting his own history, which I mean, we've talked about a little bit. The context of everything that we'll learn much later in the franchise with uh, his his uh, exploits with Hela and what the two of them did and how, you know, we kind of think that at the beginning of this, when he's when he decides to not uh, strike down Laufey when he has Laufey at the end of Gungnir, that maybe that's when Odin starts kind of having this mental shift and, and starting to see maybe war isn't the answer and maybe there is a better way, which also might be why he decides to not kill this baby, but to bring it home. Well, and I absolutely believe that Odin believes what he's saying. Oh, yeah. Um, and, 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 and I believe that for reasons that I think are probably better expressed in the next minute. And we'll, we'll definitely get into that then. I want to just say one moment quick from a mythological background, because I think this, this idea of you take someone to a temple to abandon them, I think can sound really weird. I, I don't know if this is where they, the writers got it from. I don't, I, I, I did some looking, I didn't see this come up often in Norse mythology, but in Greek mythology, certain that is a, the idea of this is an unwanted baby. We don't know if we can love it for some, or it's a, a runt. You know, it, it's kind of like today, the, the, the cliche of like leaving the baby outside the orphan outside the door of the orphanage. To, to leave a baby at a temple was, was a, a fairly traditional thing in Greek mythology, and certainly a lot of our best heroes or, or famous you know, mortals were people who were left at the temple of Athena and so raised to be a devotee of Athena. And so I, I don't know if that's what's happened, and certainly it may be possible that they left the baby in the temple because that's where it would be safest. Uh, and Odin was just like, oh, yeah, I'm going to assume that's abandoned for his own purposes, but that is one way you can read it as why they're in the temple and that the baby was abandoned, basically like left out for exposure. I love that. I mean, for all we know, Mrs. Laufey had been in the battle too and had died, right? I mean, she could have been a warrior, you know, frost giant for all we know. And and so abandoned has, you know, it's it, like like you said, uh, it's a very big word that, uh, that uh, Odin is using here because he's the victor. Um, I mean, it could have just been he was left there because his parents had been one was killed and one was, you know, dying or injured. And they do they do it in, in narratives all the time. And we do it in our own lives. We retcon uh, our own origins. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> right. well, I was left in a temple. I was abandoned in a temple. Or you know what? I'm the product of a god and an animal. You know, I, we're just making ourselves <laughs> look good <laughs> in one way or the other. <laughs> yeah. I love that Branagh acknowledged in an interview uh, that I read that talking about he was interested in directing this movie, not just because of his Shakespearean echoes, but that but that's but it, the quote is that Stan Lee, who created the character, you went went to the myths, 
quote, went to the myths that Shakespeare never used. You know, Shakespeare didn't get into the, he went into Roman and, 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 and some, some uh, myths, uh, certainly English myths, but um, he didn't go to these uh, Norse myths, which is really interesting. Well, I mean, especially since, you know, this is not very long after the Norse are the people who were conquering and burning English homes quite often. So it might not be, you know, the stories we're most excited about telling to our public. Right. Norway's the bad guy in Hamlet. One of the bad guys in Hamlet. But (laughs) yeah, not so much. I I think it's very telling about this minute that we're talking almost entirely about just the acting and the dialogue. I want to bring up one technical moment that I thought was so perfect. The way Owen's face is lit by the firelight, it just makes him seem old. It makes him seem like he is not doddering, but like that he's fading, you know, and that this is a moment of really, you know, in any parent dynamic, there's a moment where you realize, like, you don't need dad's permission to do things anymore. And actually, like, dad's advice might be wrong. And I think that's a part of, you know, it's a part of what's going on as well as just the, the way that light and shadow is played about all, you know, because so much of this is we're trying to bring events out into the light, but it's always shadow. I just thought that that technical detail is so perfect for this minute. It's a great location for this scene, you know, to be down here in the vault, which, I mean, that will come up in a later minute about the fact that they're in this place where where Odin stores his, uh, you know, the things that he takes from uh, his plunders from various uh, battles and everything and locks it up. And like, I think that's a very interesting place to have this. Plus, you've got that fantastic, just the way the floor is so shiny, you've got that the um, destroyer's I don't know what it is. We'll call it the storage room in the back with that grid that's lighting up the floor and all the water and reflections. I mean, it's just it's a beautiful location for this. I can see why they would want to put a scene like this here. And it's a great there's always that moment as as a child when you recognize that your parent is fallible. And this is that this is that moment for Loki in every way. I mean, he's he's fallible. Oh, and he's mortal. He's he's I mean, that's coming up later in the minute. But um, we begin to see it here, which is a good eye on you, Matthew, because I didn't notice it until my second or third rewatch, which is like, oh, he looks Odin looks frail from the from the jump in this scene, Um, uh, which is perfect, because then that's what happens at the end. I mean, your defense, this is probably my fifth rewatch because of the way we're doing this podcast. But yes, that's how I got it. (laughs) Um, I, I wanted to also just talk about we've, we've talked a little bit about like magic in this realm and versus science, because I mean, they the way they spin it is like everything is just like this super science. It's a level way beyond our capacity of knowledge. But they also have introduced magic with Loki doing magic. Uh, we know that uh, Frigga uh, does magic and we've seen Odin do magic. He, you know, cast a spell on Mjolnir that uh, made it so only the worthy can pick it up. And here we see him essentially uh, putting or like casting some sort of a spell on this child as he's holding this baby, which and I don't know if these markings again on the when the baby is blue. I don't know if the markings that we're seeing on his body really line up with Loki, but, you know, maybe they change it with age. Regardless, we see, you know, I mean, we don't hear him or see him actually casting a spell, but he's something's clearly happening magic wise because as he's holding the baby Loki, uh, it goes from looking like a Jotun to looking like an Asgardian, and uh, which uh, you know, I, 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 you know, the way that it's scripted is that it's a spell that uh, Odin casts on the child. So, 
when Hogan the Grim in the last uh, set of minutes was talking about, you know, only a master of magic could have brought those Jotuns here. That now includes Odin, too. So, again, I feel like that pool that Hogan's talking about is much broader than um, than. I mean, again, I don't know why they're so specifically, you know, so suspicious of Loki um, from that last minute. Well, magic is a great tool, isn't it? I mean, (laughs) anything you can't explain is magic. Exactly. It's one hell of a plot device. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't. Sh- I wasn't sure that it was specific magic. It was just once uh, Odin adopted in the process of adopting and holding him, that was turning him uh, as guardian. But you know, in that sense, he's he's very much like Shakespeare's Prospero from The Tempest, which is which is also perfect. If if Loki is Caliban, and 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 Odin is Prospero, um, and y- using his man magic. In, in ways he thinks are good is good, but uh, in ways that other people might think are bad. Um, that's that's very, very Shakespearean. Just the complexity, the nuance of of wait, I'm doing something for good. Well, in your eyes, it's good. But is it is it for everybody? Um, and Prospero's going through his own his own things with his own teenage daughter, which I'm guessing is even worse, more, more troublesome than being the father to the god of mischief. That's <laughs> <laughs> certainly a challenge, that's for sure. So I think there's one last moment that I want to touch on and, and then open to everyone else. And uh, we're going to have four more great minutes this week to get into. So the minute ends with Loki continuing to press the question. You know, he wants to ask, you know, you're, you're covered in Yoden blood. Why did you bring me back? And we have this great disconnect that I think we'll talk more about in the next minute where, you know, Loki wants information and Odin thinks Loki wants to be comforted. And 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 Loden finally just breaks, you know, and he screams out, tell me. What what's going in his head at that moment? Especially the question I want to ask is, do you think there's a specific answer he wants to hear? Or is it just that he needs to know whatever it is? I think he wants to know the truth. Um, because in the minute prior to this, he's just gotten this huge shock. Uh, you know, and he wants he wants answers. Um and not that that's going to make things any easier for him necessarily, but he can't do anything without knowing knowing the answer, at least as Odin understands it. And then, of course, he's got to, no matter what Odin says, he has to come to his own place of comfortability with with what he's hearing. And how does, I mean, you could you could argue, I guess, because I since I don't know, is this the moment where he becomes the god of mischief, you know, where he's not who he thinks he is? He's <laughs> he's 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 born of two cultures. He he's a plaything. He's a monster. He's not just a rival. Uh, for the throne, he's a villain, and Thor's the hero. I mean, it, it's a transformative moment for for uh, Loki here, and I, I, I think one of the beauties of it is how just intensely Hiddleston goes for that sort of primal um, despair. And and clearly, I mean, I, I love the way that it's portrayed by Odin as well, because Odin is, I mean, he really froze, right? I mean, this whole, which is funny, because he's, he's not the frost giant, but he's the one who froze. Uh, and he's, he's standing here completely, like, it's almost like he's thought about this moment for so many years, and now it's finally here. And he just, like, completely doesn't know how to proceed. It. And, and it's just like, yeah, he's just like, uh, yeah, and it's, I mean, it, I think it, it, I don't know. I find that it works exceptionally well the way that uh, the whole scene is constructed. What? Like, I don't want to keep going back in psychology, but I know that's another thing we talked about a lot in, in terms of family therapy type moments is that as a parent, the natural urge is always to comfort. And, and that at some point you have to recognize the need for truth overwhelms the need for comfort. You know, I think Odin isn't there. And that's why they're having this very 
they're having two different conversations. And I, I think you may well be right that Loki just needs to know. I, I have a theory, though, that I feel like on some level, many of me conscious, but Loki, wa- what Loki wants Odin to say is something like, I looked at you and I knew you were, you could have just as much of a chance to be my my heir as as my my son or like i i i I had doubts about thor already you know we we've heard so many times that that loki has always grown up in the shadow of his brother we also now know that his brother has just been banished and odin still hasn't said he hasn't said anything of like oh and by the way you're next in line kid and so i'm just one i wonder if that i'm probably headcanoning like crazy but in my mind, there's a little bit of that in Loki's mind. You know, he he what he wants is the moment of Odin saying, "Because you are, I knew that you were worthy, and by the way, you still are. You are my heir now." I think that's I think that's totally true, and that's very evocative of Edmund in King Lear, who mm, yeah. who you know who questions why bastard, wherefore base, why am I why am I less than Thor just because my parents weren't married. It's a it's it's a um, it's a legitimate question to part pardon the pun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I think you're 100 percent right. I think that is what he wants, whether it's conscious or not. He, I, he absolutely wants that legitimacy. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it, it makes for a powerful, uh, very powerful moment for him. So. Well, we have so much more to talk about. But for either of you, is there anything about this minute that you're just dying to bring up or point out? Not about this minute. Yeah, there's a lot more. There's a lot more juicy stuff coming up. So, but we have a great week ahead of us. I I just want to close by saying, um, this is kind of off topic, but uh, Austin, after hearing you say so many things about uh, Henry the Fourth, which is not a play I know very well, um, I I know that Hollywood is crazy about prequels right now, and I don't love the prequel movement, but I want Kenneth Branagh to say, like, look, you all love Henry the Fifth. I'm I'm doing a prequel called Henry the Fourth because the ability of the idea of watching a movie that Branagh directs where I get to see that whole story of how that you're talking about and know that then I'm going to watch Kenneth Branagh as the same character perform the St. Crispin's Day speech. Like it just it, it blows my mind. You know, Hollywood, send me a check. Do that. Do that movie, because I, I think uh, Branagh's Henry V is one of my favorite Shakespeare ever. But like knowing more about where he comes from to get to that point just makes the whole thing so much more powerful. Well, you can you can watch that right now. Really? Okay. There's a series called The Hollow Crown done by the BBC and PBS. And a young man named Tom Hiddleston played Hal Hmm. in both Henry IV's part one and two, edited together slightly to be one movie. And then he plays Henry V. So you can watch Hiddleston do that entire run. I've seen a single actor do those three plays um, in life. And it's, it's amazing to watch one actor tell that entire arc. Andy, I feel a cough coming on. I'm going to go watch that instead of podcast. You don't mind that, right? <laughs> okay, no. We're going to be back tomorrow, I promise, well, folks. And I'll definitely, and I'll put the link for that in the uh, the show notes so people can track it down. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I, I might do a review of that on a, a different podcast at some point soon or on the next reel. That sounds like a great next reel topic. Uh, Austin, I'm sure a lot of our guests are like, okay, I want to find more about this guy, uh, hear more of your thoughts. Tell us more about where people can find the stuff you, that you do. Uh, I'm pretty easily found uh, um, on the Twitter at Austin Titchener. Also under, I also tweet for the Reduced Shakespeare Company uh, at Reduced. Um, and my website, which has links to all the other stuff that I do, is theshakespeareans.com. Shakespearean, C-E.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to this week. Andy, thank you as always for making this all happen. Uh, I joke about it, but all the great sound, I promise. That's not how it sounds like to start. This is all due to Andy's incredible editing. Thank you so much for your doing. And most importantly to you fans, 
Uh, I'm sure the three of us could have a beer and would love having this conversation, but it's so much more fun knowing that you all are enjoying this and are responding. I love the feedback we've already been getting. Let us know what you think. Let us know your thoughts on Shakespeare and, and this minute and all the rest of it. Uh, all that information is always uh, you can find on the show notes for this. And just most importantly, thank you for listening and have a great day. Until next time, true believers. Celsior. I mean, Mjolnir. I mean, hang on. Wow, shoot, I forgot. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is One Last Ride by Martin Puringer. Find the show at truestory.fm. And if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show. Mm-hmm.